You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Loss of the Diamond 1848. The events, related by Gabrielle Betteridge, house steward in the service of Julia, Lady Verinder. Chapter 1. In the first part of Robinson Crusoe, at page 129, you will find it thus written. Now I saw, though too late, the folly of beginning a work before we count the cost, and before we judge rightly of our own strength to go through with it. Only yesterday I opened my Robinson Crusoe at that place. Only this morning, May 21st, 1850, came my lady's nephew, Mr. Franklin Blake, and held a short conversation with me as follows. Betteridge, says Mr. Franklin, I've been to the lawyers about some family matters, and among other things, we've been talking of the loss of the Indian diamond in my aunt's house in Yorkshire two years since. Mr. Bruff thinks, as I think, that the whole story ought, in the interests of truth, to be placed on record in writing, and the sooner the better. Not perceiving his drift yet, and thinking it always desirable, for the sake of peace and quietness, to be on the lawyer's side, I said I thought so too. Mr. Franklin went on. In this matter of the diamond, he said, the characters of innocent people have suffered under suspicion already, as you know. The memories of innocent people may suffer hereafter for want of a record of the facts to which those who come after us can appeal. There can be no doubt that this strange family story of ours ought to be told, and I think, Betteridge, Mr. Bruff and I together have hit on the right way of telling it. Very satisfactory to both of them, no doubt, but I failed to see what I myself had to do with it so far. We have certain events to relate, Mr. Franklin proceeded, and we have certain persons concerned in those events who are capable of relating them. Starting from these plain facts, the idea is that we should all write the story of the Moonstone in turn, as far as our own personal experience extends, and no farther. We must begin by showing how the diamond first fell into the hands of my uncle Herncastle when he was serving in India fifty years since. This prefatory narrative I've already got by me in the form of an old family paper which relates the necessary particulars on the authority of an eyewitness. The next thing to do is to tell how the diamond found its way into my aunt's house in Yorkshire two years ago, and how it came to be lost in little more than twelve hours afterwards. Nobody knows as much as you do, Betteridge, about what went on in the house at that time, so you must take the pen in hand and start the story. In those terms, I was informed of what my personal concern was with the matter of the diamond. If you're curious to know what course I took under the circumstances, I beg to inform you that I did what you would probably have done in my place— 
I modestly declared myself to be quite unequal to the task imposed upon me, and I privately felt, all the time, that I was quite clever enough to perform it, if only I gave my own abilities a fair chance. Mr. Franklin, I imagine, must have seen my private sentiments in my face. He declined to believe in my modesty, and he insisted on giving my abilities a fair chance. Two hours have passed since Mr. Franklin left me. As soon as his back was turned, I went to my writing desk to start the story. There I have sat helpless, in spite of my abilities, ever since, seeing what Robinson Crusoe saw, as quoted above, namely, the folly of beginning a work before we count the cost, and before we judge rightly of our own strength to go through with it. Please to remember I opened the book by accident at that bit, only the day before I rashly undertook the business now in hand, and allow me to ask, if that isn't prophecy, what is? I am not superstitious. I have read a heap of books in my time. I am a scholar in my own way. Though, turned seventy, I possess an active memory and legs to correspond. You are not to take it, if you please, as the saying of an ignorant man, when I express my opinion that such a book as Robinson Crusoe never was written and never will be written again. I have tried that book for years, generally in combination with a pipe of tobacco, and I have found it my friend in need in all the necessities of this mortal life. When my spirits are bad, Robinson Crusoe. When I want advice, Robinson Crusoe. In past times when my wife plagued me, in present times when I have had a drop too much, Robinson Crusoe. I have worn out six stout Robinson Crusoes with hard work in my service. On my lady's last birthday, she gave me a seventh. I took a drop too much on the strength of it, and Robinson Crusoe put me right again. Price, four shillings and sixpence, bound in blue, with a picture into the bargain. Still, this don't look much like starting the story of the diamond, does it? I seem to be wandering off in search of Lord knows what, Lord knows where. We will take a new sheet of paper, if you please, and begin over again with my best respects to you. Chapter 2 I spoke of my lady a line or two back. Now, the diamond could never have been in our house, where it was lost, if it had not been made a present of to my lady's daughter, and my lady's daughter would never have been in existence to have the present if it had not been for my lady, who, with pain and travail, produced her into the world. Consequently, if we begin with my lady, we are pretty sure of beginning far enough back, and that, let me tell you, when you've got such a job as mine in hand, is a real comfort at starting. If you know anything of the fashionable world, you've heard tell of the three beautiful Miss Herncastles, Miss Adelaide, Miss Caroline, and Miss Julia, this last being the youngest and the best of the three sisters, in my opinion, and I had opportunities of judging, as you shall presently see. I went into the service of the old lord, their father, Thank God we've got nothing to do with him in this business of the diamond. He had the longest tongue and the shortest temper of any man, high or low, I've ever met with. I say, I went into the service of the old lord as page-boy-in-waiting on the three honorable young ladies at the age of fifteen years. There I lived till Miss Julia married the late Sir John Verinder, 
an excellent man who only wanted somebody to manage him, and between ourselves he found somebody to do it. And what is more, he throve on it and grew fat on it and lived happy and died easy on it, dating from the day when my lady took him to the church to be married to the day when she relieved him of his last breath and closed his eyes forever. I've omitted to state that I went with the bride to the bride's husband's house and lands down here. Sir John, she says, I can't do without Gabriel Betteridge. My lady, says Sir John, I can't do without him either. That was his way with her, and that was how I went into his service. It was all one to me where I went, so as long as my mistress and I were together. Seeing that my lady took an interest in the out-of-door work and the farms and such like, I took an interest in them too, with all the more reason that I was a small farmer's seventh son myself. My lady got me put under the bailiff, and I did my best, and gave some satisfaction, and got promotion accordingly. Some years later, on the Monday, as it might be, my lady says, Sir John, your bailiff is a stupid old man. Pension him liberally, and let Gabriel Betteridge have his place. On the Tuesday, as it might be, Sir John says, My lady, the bailiff is pensioned liberally, and Gabriel Betteridge has got his place. You hear more than enough of married people living together miserably. Here's an example to the contrary. Let it be a warning to some of you and an encouragement to others. In the meantime, I'll go on with my story. Well, there I was in Clover, you will say, placed in a position of trust and honor with a little cottage of my own to live in, with my rounds on the estate to occupy me in the morning, and my accounts in the afternoon, and my pipe and my Robinson Crusoe in the evening. What more could I possibly want to make me happy? Remember what Adam wanted when he was alone in the Garden of Eden, and if you don't blame it in Adam, don't blame it in me. The woman I fixed my eye on was the woman who kept house for me at my cottage. Her name was Selina Goby. I agree with the late William Cobbett about picking a wife. See that she chews her food well and sets her foot down firmly on the ground when she walks, and you're all right. Selina Goby was all right in both these respects, which was one reason for marrying her. I had another reason, likewise, entirely of my own discovering. Selina, being a single woman, made me pay so much a week for her board and services. Selina, being my wife, couldn't charge for her board and would have to give me her services for nothing. That was the point of view I looked at it from. Economy, with a dash of love. I put it to my mistress, as in duty-bound, just as I'd put it to myself. "'I've been turning Selina Goby over in my mind,' I said, "'and I think, my lady, it will be cheaper to marry her than to keep her.' My lady burst out laughing and said she didn't know which to be most shocked at, my language or my principles. Some joke tickled her, I suppose, of the sort that you can't take unless you're a person of quality.' understanding nothing myself, but that I was free to put it next to Selina. I went and put it accordingly. And what did Selina say? Lord, how little you must know of women, if you ask that. Of course, she said yes. As my time drew nearer, and there got to be talk of me having a new coat for the ceremony, my mind began to misgive me. I've compared notes with other men as to what they felt while they were in my interesting situation— 
and they've all acknowledged that, about a week before it happened, they privately wished themselves out of it. I went a trifle further than that myself. I actually rose up, as it were, and tried to get out of it. Not for nothing. I was too just a man to expect she would let me off for nothing. Compensation to the woman when the man gets out of it is one of the laws of England. In obedience to the laws, and after turning it over carefully in my mind, I offered Selina Gobi a feather bed and fifty shillings to be off the bargain. You will hardly believe it, but it is nevertheless true she was fool enough to refuse. After that, it was all over with me, of course. I got the new coat as cheap as I could, and I went through all the rest of it as cheap as I could. We were not a happy couple, and not a miserable couple. We were six of one and half a dozen of the other. How it was, I don't understand, but we always seemed to be getting, with the best of motives, in one another's way. When I wanted to go upstairs, there was my wife coming down, or when my wife wanted to go down, there was I coming up. That is married life, according to my experience of it. After five years of misunderstandings on the stairs, it pleased an all-wise providence to relieve us of each other by taking my wife. I was left with my little girl Penelope, and with no other child. Shortly afterwards, Sir John died, and my lady was left with her little girl, Miss Rachel, and no other child. I have written to very poor purpose of my lady, if you require to be told, that my little Penelope was taken care of, under my good mistress's own eye, and was sent to school and taught, and made a sharp girl, and promoted, when old enough, to be Miss Rachel's own maid. As for me... I went on with my business as bailiff year after year up to Christmas 1847 when there came a change in my life. On that day, my lady invited herself to a cup of tea alone with me in my cottage. She remarked that, reckoning from the year when I started as a page boy in the time of the old lord, I had been more than fifty years in her service, and she put into my hands a beautiful waistcoat of wool that she had worked herself to keep me warm in the bitter winter weather. I received this magnificent present quite at a loss to find words to thank my mistress with for the honor she had done me. To my great astonishment it turned out, however, that the waistcoat was not an honor, but a bribe. My lady had discovered that I was getting old before I had discovered it myself, and she had come to my cottage to wheedle me, if I may use such an expression, into giving up my hard out-of-door work as bailiff and taking my ease for the rest of my days as steward in the house. I made as good a fight of it against the indignity of taking my ease as I could, but my mistress knew the weak side of me. She put it as a favor to herself. The dispute between us ended after that in my wiping my eyes like an old fool with my new woolen waistcoat and saying I would think about it. The perturbation in my mind, in regard to thinking about it, being truly dreadful after my lady had gone away, I applied the remedy which I have never yet found to fail me in cases of doubt and emergency. I smoked a pipe and took a turn at Robinson Crusoe. Before I had occupied myself with that extraordinary book five minutes, I came on a comforting bit, page 158, as follows. "'Today we love what tomorrow we hate,' I saw my way clear directly. Today, I was all for continuing to be farm bailiff. 
"'Tomorrow, on the authority of Robinson Crusoe, "'I should be all the other way. "'Take myself tomorrow, while in tomorrow's humor, "'and the thing was done. "'My mind, being relieved in this manner, "'I went to sleep that night in the character "'of Lady Verinder's farm bailiff, "'and I woke up the next morning "'in the character of Lady Verinder's house steward, "'all quite comfortable, and all through Robinson Crusoe. "'My daughter Penelope,' has just looked over my shoulder to see what I've done so far. She remarks that it is beautifully written and every word of it true. But she points out one objection. She says what I've done so far isn't in the least what I was wanted to do. I'm asked to tell the story of the diamond, and instead of that, I've been telling the story of my own self. Curious, and quite beyond me to account for, I wonder whether the gentlemen who make a business and a living out of writing books ever find their own selves getting in the way of their subjects, like me. If they do, I can feel for them. In the meantime, here's another false start and more waste of good writing paper. What's to be done now? Nothing that I know of, except for you to keep your temper and for me to begin it all over again for the third time. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.